Marketing Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Barker. Today, I have with me John Bruno, the Vice President of Commerce Strategy at Pros, an AI-powered commerce platform. This platform helps marketers dramatically price, personalize, and sell to the people who matter most, whenever, however, and whenever they want to. Previously, John worked with manufacturers, retailers, and Fortune 1000 brands by advising and helping shape their digital and customer engagement strategies. Today, however, he joins us to discuss how B2B marketers can leverage omni-channel marketing and how Pros maximizes this strategy. However, before I start my conversation with John, I wanted to tell you more about our services that my team and I offer. We offer consulting and full managed digital marketing services, including content marketing, online PR, influencer marketing, and more. For more details on how to contact us or for more information about our services, check out our website at shanebarker.com. That's S-H-A-N-E-B-A-R-K-E-R.com. And now let's get into the conversation with John. Awesome, you guys. Hey, we're super excited today. We've got John Bruno today from Pros. Uh, John, thank you so much for being on the podcast today, man. It's an absolute pleasure. Appreciate the invite. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I know we've been going back and forth for a little while and finally we we're able to, to squeeze some time out uh, in your schedule. I know you guys are busy over there doing all kinds of fun stuff. And we talked about this a little bit before the podcast. We're going to go over this later on in the podcast in the sequence, but just what you guys are doing and, and how people have probably had an experience with, with your company and not even knowing it, which is super awesome. I, when I was doing a little research before we reached out to you guys, I I was thoroughly impressed with the background there, like what you guys have done and how long you've been doing it. But I, I don't want to talk about that right now. I know it's hard not to. I've already brought it up twice in five minutes because I'm excited for the podcast. But I figured I wanted to kind of talk about you a little bit and kind of figure, you know, kind of talk about your background. And, and we always like to start off. I like to get to know a little bit more about my guests and want to know, like, uh, where did you grow up, man? Where did, where, did you, where did the origins of John Bruno start? Yeah, I am a Bostonian born and mm. raised. And uh, I've actually worked for several years to remove as much of the accent as possible. Uh, but I grew up here. I went to college here. I started my career here. And then I found myself kind of looking at those around me and, and they, uh, they were all more worldly than I was, if you will. So I up and left for a few years to Washington, D.C., but uh, that didn't last long. I found, my, I found my way back. So being from Boston, you must be a huge Yankees fan, I assume. Um. That's one way most wouldn't describe it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I tell you, man, I um, and it's funny. So because I've been out to Boston, Boston was actually one of the cities like I'm you know, I'm in, in California, but Boston was one of the cities actually because of the movie Goodwill Hunting. Oh, I yeah. saw Goodwill Hunting and it like I was like, I'm either going to move to Chico, California, which is where Sierra Nevada is from. I'm a beer fan because I'm Irish or I'm going to or Boston. My mom's like, how did you come up those two? And I'm like, well, I like Sierra Nevada and they have a good business school and Boston has a college every like nine centimeters or something like there, there's a college, like, like there's so many, I think there was like, I remember doing a tour out there and they said, there was like, there's so many colleges per capita. Like it was one of the, anyways, crazy amount of colleges and a great vibe. Like the people out there, I had nothing but a good time. We can't go into heavy detail because of probably restraining orders and other things that potentially happen out in Boston, but had a phenomenal time. I mean, just a great, great city. And I'll tell you, I have never, I mean, you talk about, I joked around about obviously the Yankees and, and the Red Sox, but that rivalry is like, like I, I can't, do you even, would you ever see anybody wearing a Yankees jersey walking in Boston? Probably not. Not a fairly, they, fairly uncommon here in Boston, going to Fenway Park is, is probably more akin to going to church. I was going to say, it's like a religious else. experience. Yeah. yeah. Like it's like you, I, I was, I mean, like I said, I'm, I'm a, you know, Giants fan and obviously, and we're very loyal, but I, Bostonians are like, and New Yorkers are also, that's like this thing that's like something else, something else. Well, how, how big was your family growing up in Boston? 
So immediate family is not that big. Mother, father, and I had an older sister, but uh, I'm Italian. So as you might expect, uh, I've probably got more cousins than I can care to account or or even remember. So big family, a lot of uh, 3 p.m. Sunday dinners, if you will, dinners in quotes, which is uh, macaroni and, and sauce and meatballs religiously. I mean, that's, and, and why should it not be religiously? I mean, I, I'm actually... Because this is, and I realize this is an East Coast thing too, is that we have a lot of, uh, I'm married to, my, my wife's Italian. And it seems like Irish and Italians, like it's either they, and there's this thing of getting together. I don't know if it always works out. This, this is working out good, only because my wife listens to the podcast. So I couldn't tell you otherwise. But um, yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. I, it's, you know, you can't go wrong with Italians. Like I said, I might be a little biased, might be a little biased, but good people over there and phenomenal food, by the way, as well. So what, do you have any, any interesting facts about growing up? I mean, either in Boston or with your family, like something that most people wouldn't know? Yeah, a couple of things. So growing up, my father, this is actually kind of where I got so enamored with all things B2B. My father was actually the, the owner and founder of a paper distribution company. Super exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, in the greater yeah. Boston area, largely serving things like restaurants and takeout places with pizza boxes, wax paper, plastic utensils, things of that nature. Yeah. And he had a, a kind of a B2C side of the business as well that did uh, like party favors and balloons. And so I got exposed to a lot of crazy things kind of growing up and, and wild experiences. You know, when I was about 10 years old, I used to do voice uh, voiceover radio commercials for Radio Disney. Uh, got exposed to family friends who own businesses with ice cream trucks. So I, you know, drove an ice cream truck for my, uh, my formative years uh, in high school and early into college. So you name it. Uh, I, I feel like the, the pastimes of holding odd, jo- odd jobs has largely gone away, but I've got a few under my belt. I love that. I love that. I was, you know, it's funny growing up. I did, I mowed lawns, like anything I could do to make a dollar. Like, and, and you know what the funny part is I actually did, I didn't do ice cream. But I did, there was a neighbor that he was one of the uh, crystal, you know, crystal milk. I don't know if you mm-hmm. know. So, and he had a, one of the original trucks and he would get up and drop milk off. I mean, this is, you know, I'm not 80 years old. Like they would drop milk off on people's doorsteps. And so I did that for, um, for a few weeks with him, but it was a grind. And then I had to get up at like 3.30 in the morning to go like pretty much break into houses and drop off milk. Like these days it would be a felony unless you're Amazon, then they're you know, somehow be in your house anyways. But yeah, it was like, it was crazy. So yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan. I mean, I used to do anything to make money back in the day, like just anything I thought I could make 10 bucks, 20 bucks. I was a grinder. So I love that. So are you currently in Boston still? So I moved back about uh, eight or 10 years ago and I live in the suburbs now. So I've, I've kind of graduated from living in the city. One thing you'll, you'll hear from anybody in the area, always from Boston even if you don't live in Boston or born in Boston, it's just easier to say Boston. Yeah. And to your Goodwill hunting uh, reference earlier, everybody knows somebody that was in Goodwill hunting. Uh, that movie, I've been back for a few years now. Awesome. Yeah. That movie like moved me. Like I, I'm a big Robin Williams fan, but I was watching that movie. There was something about that movie. I was just like, you know, I'm, I was raised by hippies. So, you know, I, I, I cry a lot. I'll watch a movie and just be like, my wife's like, are you okay? I'm, no, I'm fine. I'm just, my allergies are crushing. I'm not right crying. Now. You're crying. <laughs> yeah. What are you doing? Don't look at me like that. Like you're the one who's emotional, not me. And I'm just like, she's like, you need a tissue. I'm like, no, it's my allergies. I need an allergy pill or something like a Benadryl for God's sakes. Um, and then did you, you said you went to college also in Boston. What'd you, what, what college did you go to in Boston? I did Uh proud alumnus of Boston college. There we go. And then what was your major? 
I actually did a double major in, in given my career has been really centered in technology. Interestingly, my majors had nothing to do with technology. So I majored in economics and philosophy, which brought along a lot of questions prior to graduation. So what are you going to do? Think about making money? <laughs> oh, damn. Like people come with the jokes huh, when you graduate. Yeah. That's too funny. It's, I always ask people their major because I'm always interested to see like their path, right? Because I mean, sometimes I've had people that are like, oh, I was an art major and now I'm, you know, VP of this company. So I always love kind of hearing because I, I think it's important for people that are going to college that, you know, you're, you're, you're sp probably especially more these days that your things might change. Like you might mm -hmm. be wanting to do this and then all of a sudden you go this way and that's okay. Um, I'm secretly saying that to my son who might be listening to the podcast. So it's like, <laughs> don't worry, son, it's going to be fine. Um, and then what was your first job out of college? What did you do out of college? So I uh, actually was working in college and it was my sophomore year where I was like, I need to make a few couple of bucks, I something that's convenient, close to college, something that kind of marries some of my passions as well, ended up at working Apple retail. So mm -hmm. there was a store close to the, close to the campus. I started working there, then started doing trainings and then started opening up stores all across uh, New England. So, you know, the launch of the, the flagship store right across, uh, you know, down the street from Fenway Park mm -hmm. or, you know, the first store ever in Maine, I would travel and I would train and, and launch new stores for them. And it was upon graduating, you know, everyone who came to Boston College had a different story. They were from different areas and I was the local guy who pretty much could walk to college from the house that I grew up in. And so it was that point in time. So my, my first kind of quote unquote real job, if you will, was I moved down to Washington, D.C. and did uh, big government co uh, consulting with Booz Allen Hamilton. Uh, that's funny. So it's, it's funny. We have kind of similar paths, except I think you picked a better company to go with. You, you were you know, traveling around and opening stores for, for, uh, for Apple. I actually worked for, um, I don't know if they were in the East Coast, but it was called Chevy's Mexican Restaurant. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a, a Mexican yeah, chain and I actually went in, you know, being corporate with them. I mean, started off literally as a busser and moved my way up and then started opening them and would do uh, POS systems, like point of sale mm -hmm. systems and then doing training for managers and everything. Now there, since there's still some stores around, not that many. Um, there's actually one close to where I lived. Uh, I lived in Arlington, Virginia, outside of DC, but there was one close to there. So I'm familiar with the chain. That is awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually opened a few of those in the East Coast. So I did a lot of traveling there. And that was, I kind of call that Shane 1.0. I think I'm at Shane 3.0. Now you can tell, nobody can see this in the podcast, but the gray in the beard tells me that I'm about 3.0. And I'll see if I even make it to 4.0. But we'll, you know, it's, you know, it's 2021. So we, who knows what's going to happen. But so I wanted to talk about, um, I want to talk a little bit about omni-channel marketing, um, because obviously your background and um, a lot of people, why don't you give people a little a little bit more in your background, because I was impressed with that, which you've done over the last probably, what, probably 15 years plus. Um, give us a little bit about your background. Then I want to talk about omni-channel marketing. So I kind of want to set the table for that. Yeah, the background has been, been pretty eclectic. And at the risk, well, probably more than risk, but at the risk of sounding cliche, my career has always been somewhere between business and technology, always at the intersection, sometimes leaning more to one side than the other. So while I was down in DC, I was doing technology and strategy consulting for federal government clients worked in the Pentagon, you know, three days a week, uh, a lot less exciting than you might think. <laughs> Fun fact is when you start the tour of the Pentagon, a civilian tour, the, the first fact they tell you is it's the world's largest low rise office building. And that's pretty much all you need to know. <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, that was exciting to get folks. <laughs> and then I was looking to kind of move more into private sector, more into technology. And I was looking at Google. I was looking at a couple of technology firms in Chicago. And then I ended up actually moving back to the Boston area, working for a company in Cambridge called Pegasystems. Mm. 
probably the leader in uh, business process management software, automation technologies. Now they're into CRM, robotic process automation, a whole nine yards. And there I worked in the consulting arm. So I became a, a certified architect on the solution, but largely I was supporting the business internally. And so help develop a lot of applications that power their business. And eventually, you know, some of the stuff that they use that they now sell commercially out there in the market. That's what led me over to Forrester Research. So, mm. you know, one of the leaders in the, the industry research uh, market, specifically around technology. And I joined Forrester and over my time there had responsibility for the research practices of CRM, of configure price quote, which pros plays in. And then uh, ultimately, I, I owned the research practice around e-commerce for the final couple of years while I was there. And then that led me to uh, wanting to actually enact change and not just tell people what to do. And so I left and went to uh, a small startup in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia called Elastic Path. And there I own the product organization. So product management, user experience, engineering, and everything under the sun there. Always had a soft spot in my heart for pros. I had been working with them for years prior to that, you know, dating back to my Forrester days. And so I joined the organization uh, to lead strategy. I also am the interim leader for product marketing as well. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I love that. It, it's so funny where you kind of talk about where you started and like everything was like foundational and then the next thing and the next thing. And I, I love it. Sometimes things are unorthodox and it doesn't go that way, but it sounds like what you learned at this company led to the next company, led to the next company. And here you are with pros. You're Actually, what you're the VP over there, right? VP of, of yep. commercial of commerce of commerce strategy. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So let's talk about that. I want to talk about the omni channel because there's obviously a lot of things that you've done that that tie into that. Um, and what is your let's talk about the definition of omni channel. Let's or omni marketing, excuse me. Let's let's start there. Yeah. Well, I think for me, it kind of goes back to the the fundamental four P's of marketing, right? You've got your product, and today your product could be a product, it could be a service, uh, anything that you sell. The second P is you've got price. And so what's the value that you think that product or service is worth out there on the market, including how you package things. So increasingly in the subscriptions world, that's looking a little bit different as well. Then you've got your place. You know, where are those things and, and where are you going to be found by your customers and your prospects out there in the marketplace? And then lastly, the promotion. You know, what are you doing to create more of that awareness or, you know, entice prospective customers into converting and in, in being customers? Well, in this whole kind of omni-channel world, all of those things are very important, but I think the most important of those is the place, right? And so ideally, you'll know everywhere your customers are, or you'll be able to influence where they go and how they interact with you. But today's world, you know, a lot of that control is, is kind of coming out of the hands of, you know, the manufacturer, the distributor, the retailer, et cetera. And you've got these marketplaces that are around. So I always encourage businesses that I work with to ask themselves the question, are you present everywhere that your customers or customers that you want to have are? And so I think that's the most important thing is making sure that you're present. And then when you're present, then you can start to meld the other three P's around that. You know, what products are you going to make available or showcase in that channel? You know, from a, a pricing standpoint, are you creating compelling offers out there that are going to entice those customers? And then from a promotion standpoint, how are you going to stand out from the pack? You know, whether it might be around an offer that you create or some sort of other captivating way to draw the attention uh, of customers and win some of that uh, mind share and wallet share. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it's, it's funny. You know, I do think about the four P's and I guess places where you start, right? I mean, it's like you can't really promote anything. You can't put something together if you're not in front of the people you need to be in front of. I mean, it kind of makes makes total sense. So why is this? And 
and I know the answer to this, but I'm doing this for the audience that doesn't know the answer. Uh, why is this important for B2B businesses? Well, it's, I would say it's important for all businesses and, and where we are right now in B2B, you know, it, it used to be a walled garden. It used to be something that you had ultimate domain over, right? For most organizations, you know, they start interacting with their customers through their own sales efforts and sales force, and they could control that entirely. But that only gets them so far. Mm-hmm. You know, if you really want to tr- uh, truly grow and scale, you know, doing it on the backs of your own sales force is not the way to do it. Yeah. So a lot of those organizations have entered into some sort of partnership. You know, it could be a distribution partnership, a retail partnership, or, or something in between. And that helped those organizations grow tremendously. But you kind of fast forward into uh, this millennium and everything is seemingly digital. And if it wasn't before 2020, well, 2020 certainly made sure that it was front and center. And so that means your own or your partner's digital properties, your brand.com or shop.brand.com. And then increasingly you've seen, you know, major players out there in the market start to shake things up. You know, Amazon less than five years ago launched their B2B marketplace and it's already been growing like gangbusters. It's the fastest growing business unit in all of Amazon. And so the number of locations in which you can find your customers is, I would say probably at the early stages of exploding. And I use that word very purposefully because the rate of growth and the, the, the myriad of, of channels in which your customers can engage with you through is just it's mind blowing right now. And I think, I mean, that's a great point. I, that's what, what is crazy. I think 2020 made us all, it kind of accelerated us being adults in, in the space, right? I mean, it's a lot of people and you know, a lot of businesses that I know were like, oh, we're online and we're doing some stuff and things are going well there. And then 2020 was really, I mean, I do a lot of work right now for the SBA, Small Business Administration doing consulting. And, you know, a lot of these businesses, nobody was prepared for that, right? I mean, that's that's one level of just being online. The next level mm-hmm. is the pain now being in front of your customers and where are they at and, and what are you doing to be present there to be ready for the questions or concerns or sales or promotions or anything that you might do there. So I'll tell you, it, once again, I think 2021 is, is, is not going to, you know, it's also going to be that year of like, hey, we have to continue to prove and figure out where our people are at and what are we doing to stay in front of them, right? Because if not, your competitor is going to, right? And they're mm-hmm. going to make sure they take advantage and figure out where they need to be and, and get in those spots, especially during hard times when a lot of brick and mortar businesses are having issues, right? And digital is that, is that answer to being able to be, to be out there on all those channels. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the like best practices for uh, B2B marketers that they should leverage when it comes to omni-channel marketing? Yeah, so I wish I, I, wish I could sit here and say that it's the same as B2C. I wish I could say that it's about having, you know, the, the right story and digital marketing and paid placements and, and all this kind of stuff to kind of, you know, capture that, I would say, and not in a derogatory way, the more emotional buyer, right? In the B2B world, you know, the buyer is more rational and not buying because they are like you and me and get really excited about, you know, the latest Apple product or, or piece of technology out there. <laughs> Their motivations are, they have a job they need to get done and they need to buy product to support their ability to complete that job. So in reality, their needs are more about, you know, taking the time from identification of their intent to the action, you know, completing the transaction or completing whatever job they need to get done. And so for them, it might sound a little bit more mundane, but the data piece of it that kind of sits underneath the hood of every experience or, or everywhere you might interact with a brand, manufacturer, supplier, distributor, what have you, becomes more important. So helping customers shorten that time between intent and action, 
you're talking about, you know, am I providing the right product information? Is the way that I'm talking about the product aligned to the specific pain points that they have? Again, it's about, you know, solving a challenge, not necessarily, you know, catering towards that emotional buyer. And then lastly, because B2B is built on the backs of so many longstanding relationships, there's typically something about that relationship that exists. It might be, you know, commercial offers, it might be negotiated pricing, you know, volume related discounts, things of that nature. So what you're showing those customers, is it representative or indicative of the longstanding relationship that you might have? And so it would be great to say, hey, you know, anchor on the flashy messages, you know, the, the social media posts and ads and things of that nature. But in reality, if you can do a good job in manifesting those meaningful relationships now through digital mediums, uh, you're going to be set up for uh, some early success. We could just get the businesses to be more emotional, be more like consumers. It'd be so much easier because then they would just buy because they had the credit card. Damn it. Yep. I know. I know. It's a little more challenging with B2B. There's, you know, uh, if you can, you know, we talked about Apple products as we were laughing about the, the things we were talking about a little earlier. But yeah, that's easy for me. They go and put something up there and I go grab the credit card. It doesn't even think twice. And then I have to explain to my wife why I just bought a $500, $600 pair of headsets, but of <laughs> earphones that I'm not even using right now. But don't judge me. Don't judge me. So tell us how I want to I want to better understand, because obviously I get the idea of, you know, how things work when it comes to uh, omni marketing. But how does pros, how do they play into this whole thing when it comes to the omnipresence? Yeah, so kind of going back to that data story, right? Um, our legacy has been built on knowing pricing really, really well. So for those of uh, your listeners who aren't aware about pros, pros has been around for over three decades. And where you might not recognize we are, but you've probably interacted with us, is that we actually price a majority of the world's airfare. So we have kind of two parts of the business, one that focuses on kind of the airline and, and travel industries and the other that focuses more on B2B manufacturers and distributors. So we grew up solving some of the hardest problems that airlines face in, in pricing their fares and all mm. of the various permutations around that, which naturally leads to the, the questions that we always get. So you're the folks to blame for my prices changing every time I log into uh, buy an airfare in I, short, I, kind of. Yeah. I mean, I was just going to tell you like, listen, you have my email and do I just send you a thing when I want to fly someone? You're like, Hey Shane, it's Tuesday at three 30. I mean, do you have that kind of, I mean, can you hook a brother up? Or, I mean, what, what, what can we do here? Well, the glory about what it is that we do is we've actually been doing artificial intelligence since before that became the cool thing to say. Mm. And so our solutions look at everything from, you know, our customers, customers, the products they sell, uh, you know, the different historical transaction price points they've been able to sell those items at. And our customers use our AI to personalize the offers for their customers. So I wish I could tell you it was as simple as, you know, shoot me a note after this and I'll, I'll get you hooked up with the best fare imaginable. But that's the secret sauce of our customers. They just leverage our technology to produce the output. I love that. I love that. I think it's a great example too, because I was always, I mean, I knew that that was one of the things we talked about once again, a little bit before we started the podcast is just how long you guys have been around. And like, I was like, wait a second, when I started to put two and two together, and I think that being a great example of that, because, you know, we, you know, when I go to grab fares or do something, I try to play the game as much as possible. Like I'm always the guy that's like, I think it's Tuesday at 3.30 is when I should jump on there. And I know they're looking at my analytics and I got my wife looking on her iPhone. You know, we, we do what we need to do to, you know, to save that extra 20 bucks. Except, of course, it probably takes me an hour to figure it out. And I probably could have made, you know, $250 consulting or something like that, but I saved the 20 bucks and I figured out that time. So 
Um, I love that. I love that. I love that. So I think it's a really great use case to better for people to better understand. Like you guys are the ones that that make it. Once again, it's it's all supply and demand. And when people come in, and there's a lot of number of there's a number of factors that play into that. Yeah, and if you take that, and you know, airlines have some of the hardest pricing problems in the world to solve. Oh, for sure. But if you take that and extend it, well, so do B two B organizations because they've got this mixture of these longstanding relationships, these agreed to prices, maybe for this product assortment, but not these other things. So how do you make sense of all that when your typical B two B organization has you know tens of thousands, if not millions, of permutations of prices? Let alone the ability to update those or, or deliver you know the right price at the right moment. So that's the world that that we play in. And then uh, you know about you know the early 2010s, we acquired a, a company out of uh, France that does product configuration and quoting as well. So there's the the pricing side of it, and then on the B2B side, you know there's how do you execute on that price? You know how do you sell? And so it allowed us to kind of get into the world of digital selling. And between those two sets of capabilities or, or the, the configuration quoting and then the pricing side, you know, able to add some, some really cool flair and personalization to self-service experiences. That's awesome. I love that, man. And it's, it's, it's just that overall experience and be able to, to put something like that out there once again, to be able to, you know, get people at the right price at the right time. So they, so they purchase and the, the amount of data that that takes to be able to, to look at the, the, the variables and the, the data points that need to happen, I think is amazing for that all to come together. So thanks, John. It's been great having you on the podcast. And I'm also sure that our audience has learned a lot about leveraging B2B omni-channel marketing and how to do it right. On the next episode, we'll continue talking to John and discuss how e-commerce platforms are transforming the future of digital experiences.